HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Today is uh, the day for (laughs) What Doesn't Kill You. Lost my stuff there for a second. Um, Yeah, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And um, today we're going to have a really interesting show. We have two guests. Um, They will both be on the phone. Thus, if there are any problems with them hearing each other, I will be obliged to repeat some of the information. But um, I think it's it's all going to be good. We what we have today is um, I hope what will be a really robust debate on something that is called the King Amendment, but which really is the Protect Interstate Commerce Act, which was introduced by Representative uh, Stephen King of Iowa into the Farm Bill um, not so long ago. And um, so my guests today are representing the agricultural industry, uh, Brian Klippenstein, who is the executive director of Protect the Harvest, an education and advocacy group founded by Forrest Lucas of Lucas Oil in 2010 to work with leaders of agriculture to stand up for animal production and affordable food. And on the other side of the debate is um, the excellent John Goodwin from Humane Society of uh, United States. And um, John is the Director of Animal Cruelty Policy for HSUS Animal Rescue Team. He is a nationally recognized expert on animal fighting issues and has been involved in the passage of legislation at both state and federal levels to curb animal fighting. Um, Welcome, both of you gentlemen, to the program. Thank you so much for joining me today on Sunday. Um, So we're talking about the King Amendment. And before we go any further, I'm going to actually read the words because the King Amendment, uh, despite its... um, of far-reaching consequences is a very short little amendment. And so uh, since many of our listeners who probably have not read it but may have read some coverage of it, I'm just going to give people um, basically what it says, which is the following. The Constitution of the United States, uh, the government of a state or locality therein, shall not impose a standard or condition on the production of manufacture of any agricultural product sold 
or offered for sale in interstate commerce. If such production or manufacture occurs in another state and the standard or condition is in addition to the standards and conditions applicable to such production or manufacture pursuant to federal law and the laws of state and locality in which such production or manufacture occurs. So, um, uh, John, I'm going to ask you to translate that. <laughs> well, sure. Well, it's very, yeah, it's very simple. It's uh, an amendment that would prohibit any state or locality for setting, from setting a standard or a condition for agriculture products. Now, the big question is, what does that mean? Yes. And uh, that's where things get pretty complicated, mm-hmm. because some people interpret this very narrowly. Other people broad, uh, interpret it more broadly. And I think that's one of the real weaknesses with this amendment, is, yes. is that it's so open to interpretation that if it were enacted, no one knows exactly what would happen, except the one thing we can say for certain is that there will be a, would be a lot of litigation over a lot of state laws, some of which are designed to protect farmers, some of which are designed for animal welfare, and some of which are, uh, are designed for uh, food safety. And this thing would tie up courts for years to come. Uh-huh. And Brian, why don't you give me your interpretation of the amendment? Well, the amendment uh, 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 is, is designed to uh, uh, protect those who are in productive agriculture Mm-hmm. Uh, from all the complexity associated uh, with state imposition of uh, trade barriers. Um, it is, uh, in effect, uh, a response to what California did, which uh, uh, it has imposed on the other 49 uh, state producers. Uh, it's an unfunded mandate on those producers uh, the result of which uh, ultimately is an increase of food costs for consumers. Okay, that was rather opaque, to say the very least. So let's dial sure. it back. And, and say, do, do I get to be excellent too? John was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I want you to and, clarify. And, and I understand that, uh, and everyone who's, who knows him told me, He's excellent as well. He is excellent, and I'm told you're (laughs) excellent too. So I'm just gonna let I'm gonna put that to rest right now. You are excellent for even being on this program. So I really appreciate your participation. Now I want to dial this back, and I want you to explain what you mean by California, and because California uh, passed a proposition that mandated uh, the the use of uh, more humane, or if you want to use it another way, larger cages for their poultry operations, meaning that an animal, and this didn't apply just to chickens, but it applied to veal calves, et cetera, and and gestation crates for pigs. And it said that an animal has the right to stand up, turn around, lie down, and have space to do all of those things in their cages, which under many other laws, which don't have such stringent uh, animal welfare regulations, uh, is not a mandate. So what, what this law, what you're saying is that California, because they have this more progressive I can call it that, right? More progressive animal welfare statute about yeah, it's, how... It's, it's, it's progressive unless you're a consumer, yes. Okay. Uh, you know, frankly, yeah. I'm, uh, you know, I'm quite in tune with what consumers believe, and we'll talk about that in yeah, a second. No, but no, I understand that. Yeah. Uh, um, as am I. 
And I think consumers really, they may want cheap food, but they also want good animal welfare standards. And so the, the California animal welfare standards are higher than, say, in the state of Iowa, which is a big egg-producing state and a big pork-producing yeah, state. And so right. Representative King, of course, being an Iowan representative, um, is obviously going to look out the, after the interests of his own state um, sure, agricultural sure. producers. So what, what this law says, and John, you will correct me if I'm wrong, what this law, what the King Amendment is saying, is that other states should not be required to rise to the level of higher animal welfare standards than uh, exist at the federal level, which, let's be honest, are not the greatest. Right? I mean, animal welfare standards that are mandated by the feds basically mean the 26-hour law of resting, which means that an animal must be rested, watered, and fed every 26 hours on the way to slaughter. And the other one is that it has to be insensible before slaughter. Those are the only two mandated federal regulations about animal welfare. Yeah. Right. There are no federal. What the King Amendment. Oh, go ahead, John. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, there are no federal standards for the housing of animals. It sets standards right. for how much space they should have or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's correct. So uh, Brian and I probably don't agree on the interpretation of the King Amendment. He'll be shocked to hear that, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I know he will be. <laughs> Congressman King, we, we, we both agree that we're missing the NFL, though, uh, uh, Katie. Well, that, that's oh, my God. My heart beats for you. You're a better time slot. <laughs> I am. I'm actually moving my show to Mondays at noon <laughs> next now year. That's anyway, yeah. yeah. I was afraid. I was afraid she was going to say Monday night. And we'd be back. The same <laughs> that problem. would be really bad. Yeah. But let's face it. Watching sports is a colossal waste of time, and Americans really shouldn't be wasting their time watching freaking right. sports. Play sports, yes. Watch sports, no. Okay. Let's get rid of these inflated salaries, etc. But that's another show. So, boys, let's go back to the essentials here. So, what we're talking about is. On your side, Brian, you guys are interested in keeping the lowest common denominator of animal welfare standards, among other things. And John, on your side, you're committed to maintaining the highest standards of animal welfare. So how does this impact um, uh, federal, excuse me, interstate commerce? Because uh, the the King Amendment says, the the King Amendment lets California uh, dictate standards to California producers, which uh, I believe they have a right to do, even if I, whether I agree or disagree with mm-hmm. what the dictates are. Uh, where, we, uh, where we get cross is when California starts trying to dictate the practices of farmers in other states. Mm-hmm. Uh, both sides in this uh, debate are claiming the state's rights issue. Right. Uh, we don't think that a state has a right to dictate to producers in other states uh, how to produce uh, 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 safe food. Uh, but again, okay, we're you know, talking we about two different uh, things. We, we're talking about animal welfare right now. We're going to talk about food safety in the next half. Okay, so let's stick yeah, with and, just the animal welfare and, part. And, and, and California isn't telling Iowa how to raise eggs. They're saying that if you want to sell eggs in California, we want them to meet a certain standard. Right. But Iowa, if they don't want to meet that standard, or if a particular farm doesn't want to meet that standard, they still have 49 other states to sell their food in, yes. uh, and this all stems from a ballot measure, Proposition 2, that was passed in 2008 by California voters that said that the egg-laying hens had to have enough space to you know, be able to move around, flap their wings, and uh, have more reasonable amounts of space. Right. And then follow-up legislation that the state legislature passed that said that they wanted the eggs that are sold at the supermarkets to be 
also meeting that humane standard. Mm-hmm. Now, we were talking about what consumers want earlier. Proposition 2 got more votes in California than Barack Obama did. <laughs> this is a very popular law. Yeah. And I want to point out that the King Amendment, uh, Ed, you read the death. You read the language earlier. Yes. It said that uh, no, it said no state or locality to set any standard for any agricultural product. Now it didn't say California. It said no state or locality, yeah. and it didn't say eggs. It said any agricultural product. So that's pretty broad. And it's very broad. So and, it goes a lot farther, than that. and that's why the Iowa Farmers Union, Steve King's home state, Iowa Farmers Union, passed a resolution condemning it. Uh, and attorney generals from around the country have come out against it. Yep. Because the thing's so broad that it could strike down literally hundreds of laws, some of which even are designed to protect farmers, like catfish labeling laws in some of the southeastern states. Right. Okay, so Brian, you, what's your response to that? Well, you know, the, the sensitivity of farmers, uh, j- just to reach into the, into the source of this, is that uh, we have dealt with for decades in what are called non-tariff trade barriers in the international marketplace. Mm-hmm. And what, what they are is contrived standards that are come that are brought up to to discriminate against trade and uh, agriculture has been a huge source of that worldwide and the united states isn't always innocent in these things but now <laughs> okay. we have this now we have this new model uh, where we're starting to do it in the states and if you do it in a big enough state it is essentially you know, as, as a farmer told me, the only thing worse than an unfunded mandate from Washington is an unfunded mandate from Sacramento. Because to, to, to deal in the, in the country's largest state, to sell there, in other words, to survive in business, you have to meet the standard that, uh, that Governor Schwarzenegger signed into law. I, I, I love his movies. I, he probably knows way less about chickens than, than the three of us. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but we can't uh, foresee a way that we would tolerate 50 different states all having their own different standards and then moving to localities. I but mean, we already not? have why, that. What, why, on earth, why on earth would every city not be able to set arbitrary standards uh, designed to protect uh, a local producer at the expense of uh, a producer from out of state, and you know, the, the, John described the sequ- John described the sequence of what happened. Yes, the ballot initiative passed, mm-hmm. and that's uh, and we we have accepted that. But the the legislation that passed after that, uh, and some can say, well, that was done to nationalize animal welfare standards. I think most of us have a pretty good idea why it was done. It was done to protect California egg producers who could otherwise not compete with the rest of the producers in the country unless the rest of the producers became as uncompetitive as they are. Okay. And that's I, why you had legislators rush to pass this thing. It wasn't... Uh, except that know, they wasn't, did pass it. wasn't because John's... Uh, John is very effective and his group is too, but they, 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 they don't get full credit for that one. Well, I mean, I, to be honest, Okay, I'm not going to go into what your mission statement is, but I am going to get to that later on in the program. But... Um, to be honest, Brian, I mean, people did pass it because it is a popular measure. Had it not been a popular measure, had people not been willing to pay that extra price, and I'm sure that that tariff of you know one or two cents per carton of eggs uh, in order to ensure a better cage system Where, for chickens yeah. um, is not something that people feel all that strongly about versus whether or not these chickens are living in at least the most minimal conditions. Right. And, well, and I, I would think, say I mean, Katie, that's, that, that, but that is... Uh, 
I mean, the three of us uh, can afford it. And the two cents, you know, you can hear two cents, you can hear uh, 12%, what Cal Davis uh, said. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got the European model where it's 25%, 30-some percent, 44%, right before it crashes. And, and you've got all sorts of new market manipulations to deal with the aftermath of their mandates. Mm-hmm. But, Brian, wouldn't you uh, but, agree you know, that the, the, the other place, I, I don't know why. Don't talk you know, at the same time, please. One, three, one after the other. The three of us are, uh, are, are, are consumers just like the rest of the people, and I understand that's your, uh, one of your areas of expertise, Katie, but, you know, the lovely, one of the loveliest things in America is being able to go into a grocery store where there are 40,000 items that we expect to see, and there's every choice in the world. If you want to pay, and it's far more than two cents, for cage-free eggs, there they sit, right on the, uh, mm-hmm. right, and, and the, every consumer who wants to can vote with their pocketbook and do it. Well, the reason they went to the voters was because consumers weren't doing this. So you go uh, through the ballot initiative, and nowhere in the ballot initiative did it said, hey, all of you uh, vote I if you want your eggs to price to increase 25% or 10% or whatever it's going to be. Again, the three of us can afford it. I mean, it's fine, but it's uh, for us. But... There are far more people in America struggling right now than people who who aren't struggling. But I and see to just go say, hey, let's uh, we're going to raise the price of your food. Is that fine with you? Uh, it's fine with some consumers. It's not fine with body politics. Okay, let's let John respond. Sure. Yeah, sure. Because the egg industry analysts have looked at uh, what the real cost, and I'm talking about here in the United States with mm-hmm. the United States economy and access to feeds for the chickens and the materials that they need right. for farming here in the United States. And they found that giving the chickens a more reasonable amount of space where they can at least flap their wings mm-hmm. uh, caused less of a price increase than what you get with the normal variation in the cost of the feed that they get to the chickens. Which, by I the mean, way, it's, corn it's, has gone way down in price. So the cost of feed for chickens has diminished enormously in the last nine months. It, it absolutely has. But so much of this talk here is about uh, chickens and eggs. But this is about <laughs> a lot of other things. It's about... Yes. Firewood, for example. Yes, tobacco. Uh, there are states that restrict uh, the importation of firewood from certain states that have invasive pests, like the Asian longhorn beetle. And under the King Amendment, a state that wanted to prevent that pest from being brought into their state, uh, they would be not be to able to do that. that standard. That's yes, right. it also impacts the system. tobacco industry. I mean, I did actually a lot of research for this. Uh, it impacts genetically engineered food labeling. Uh, it has an impact on, um, let me take my glasses off here. It would likely um, uh, discourage states from imposing stricter requirements on their own food safety standards. It would prohibit processing requirements on out-of-state producers. And it gave a great example, one of the articles that I read, uh, which was for Food Safety News, which was an excellent expose on all of this. Um, the state banned contaminated oysters from the Gulf of Mexico unless they are processed to eliminate deadly bacteria. This law has resulted in clear benefits for California residents. Under the King Amendment, Louisiana's law that allows the sale of unprocessed oysters would supersede California's law and restrict California from protecting its uh, citizens. So it's not just chickens and eggs. It's not just uh, whether or not animal welfare standards are high in pork and cattle and, and poultry, but it's it, it 
also impacts tobacco, uh, feeding arsenicals to chickens, which is allowed in some states and not in others. So all of these hard-fought food safety issues uh, are also going to be rolled back with the King Amendment, which you know is the reason that really caught my attention. Um, and uh, Brian, I'd love to have you respond to the food safety issues. Yeah. Oh my God, we have to take a break, well, you guys. Sure. But just yeah. after you respond, Brian, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, sure. And, and you know, we've consulted uh, 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 committee staff and other lawyers to get interpretations. And uh, and uh, oh, the Judiciary uh, Committee or Agriculture Committee? The Agriculture Committee, who don't believe that uh, th- that is the case. But let's but let's just suppose but have, that, but that not is. The judiciary let's, su- let's suppose that that is a risk. Look, I, you know, I've been through the legislative process a number of times. You know, you, these things are uh, almost never a take it or leave it. Uh, there is perhaps what I'm hearing is John suggesting that we should modify the King Amendment so that these unintended consequences don't occur. And if that's the case, then we'll end up having King a amendment. modified King Amendment, which takes care of bona fide discriminatory uh, uh, trade barriers mm-hmm. and things that are simply that simply result in increased price of food, and we can yeah, take care of that great, without great... W- without provide without uh, hurting sanitary and phytosanitary uh, uh, authority of states to uh, uh, to regulate. Okay, uh, and there is you, you, you also get this is one last thing. On other, in almost every in almost every uh, oops, am I on or see? Go ahead, Brian. It, you finish, it, and almost, then we'll take a break, and then John, it, I want you to respond. Okay. In almost every conference report that's written on a major piece of legislation, you have what's called the statement of manager's language, where these sorts of details are laid out. The intent of the language, what it's supposed to cover, what it's not supposed to cover, you know, the full intention, where it came from, and uh, that helps clarify a great number of these matters. Because if there aren't unintended consequences, you know, no one on our side wants that either. Okay, well, I'm, I have the last word here, which is we're going to go to break now, but I'm just going to say that the unintended consequences are by no means dealt with in the King Amendment. The language is way too broad, and I think it should be gutted just because uh, it doesn't address the issues of interstate commerce quite as um, in a detailed way as you promote uh, Brian, from your side, and which John and I share a concern about. So, Joe, let's go to a quick break, and we'll be right back with um, with our, our two advocates for and against the King Amendment, uh, which is part at the moment attached to the Farm Bill and which will be debated in the next coming weeks and which has a really big impact on consumers. So stay tuned for more in What Doesn't Kill You. Thanks. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardIn.com. Okay, we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, and my guests today are um, John Goodwin from the Humane Society of the United States and um, Brian Klippenstein. Am I saying that right, Brian? 
Klippenstein, uh-huh, Klippenstein yeah. uh, from Protect the Harvest, um, a group that is on the agricultural side of this debate about the King Amendment, um, which is otherwise known as the Protect Interstate Commerce Act, attached currently attached to the Farm Bill, and um, currently getting a lot of press attention, unlike most agricultural issues, I might add. Um, most people seem to ignore the, uh, the level of impact that agriculture has on our country and our GDP. Um, I am not one of those to do that, and so hence this program. So um, we were just talking about who benefits the most from the King Amendment, and it seems to me that producers who basically want to embrace the most low, the lowest common denominator of animal welfare standards, of food safety standards, are the ones who are going to benefit the most from this uh, amendment yeah. if it passes. And um, no, no question, right? So, um, John, why don't we talk a little bit about that, and then Brian, you can respond. Well, sure, sure, and you know, first. On the uh, the agriculture committee lawyers, I've met some of those guys, and they're pretty sharp guys and pretty nice people. But I do want to point out that process-wise, this is an amendment that mm-hmm. uh, brings up a lot of very serious Tenth Amendment concerns. We've had the Attorney General of Mississippi come out against it. Yes. The Attorney General of Arkansas come out against it. Uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures. Fourteen law professors just put out a study on Friday afternoon yep. uh, completely calling out this amendment as being... Uh, dangerous, and so it really should have gone to at least one hearing in a judiciary committee where constitutional law experts could come and debate and uh, really vet this thing. That never happened. This was added to the Farm Bill after a limited debate uh, in May in the House Agriculture Committee. Now, there is an alternative, though, if someone uh, is worried about there being uneven standards for egg farmers around the country. And that's legislation we produce uh, that we supported with, right. with the United, United egg, egg producers. producers. Yes, thank you. The, yeah, the, the largest trade group for the egg industry. Yeah. Now we both gave a little bit. Uh, the bill didn't, uh, you know, have the cage-free standard that we had asked for. You know, that's the nature of politics. Both sides give a little bit, but it would require that the cages be longer so the hens can flap their wings, that they have perches and uh, uh, other simulation like that. And also that certain uh, food safety standards be met and labeling standards. And that would set, uh, with the agreement between the industry and the animal welfare groups, one standard across the country. And I think that would be a, a fine alternative to the King Amendment. The egg industry's, uh, majority of the egg industry's for it. The big trade groups for it. We're for it. Uh, it ran into opposition, though, from some groups that were not even going to be affected by it. The pork well, the National the Cattlemen's Beef Association would be affected by it, as would the pork producers, because included in this, I mean, included in the standards of welfare that were enacted in California, included gestation crates for pork and veal crates for calves. So, but in the fact, bill it at does. The federal level doesn't have that because it's an amendment to the Egg Products Inspection Act, which is limited I to see. eggs. And we know how well that federal uh, law has worked. Let's remember the Wright <laughs> County Egg farm in which 300 and mil- 380 million eggs were recalled for salmonella contamination in a, you know from a farm that was just uh, you know a mind blowing in terms of its failures to recognize uh, basic standards in food safety uh, and animal welfare am i right brian come on you can't defend them uh, we, we, there's we can't, got to uh, be defend, there's got to be a standard higher than any that. errors or wrongdoing. I mean, I, the standard of uh, so they're the lowest oh, for, common oh, denominator, amigo, and that's what you're defending. You're defending no, that kind no, of no, standard. It's not. Look, you know, you, you uh, I mean, it's part of the reason why uh, 
uh, this amendment, just to go back to the process for a second, then I'll come okay. back to this. Uh, uh, there was an there was a a uh, an amendment to to gut the King Amendment in the House Committee, and it failed thirty three to thirteen with a majority of both parties supporting mm-hmm. it. You know, the the effort to cut, to suggest that somehow this is uh, out of the mainstream uh, is uh, uh, j- just doesn't square with that vote in a Congress that isn't particularly bipartisan. This was a overwhelmingly bipartisan vote of support for the King Amendment, which was also included in the draft in the previous Farm Bill. Um, but you know, the, uh, agriculture has evolved over time in the most extraordinary ways, uh, and the common denominator has always been the ability to do better, to produce more with fewer inputs, mm-hmm. uh, less of less of a carbon footprint. Uh, less land, less water, mm-hmm. less feed, and at the same time in animal agriculture, and I grew up, and this was long before HSUS was a national powerhouse, explaining it to us the virtues of animal welfare. I had a father who just used, just boiled it down to one word, stress, Katie. He said, uh-huh. we want no stress, and he never was talking about stress on the employees or the kids, but on the animals, because uh, he just wasn't for it, and by the way, it's bad business. And we do not... Uh, we we dreamt of the day that we would bring animals in out of the weather and away from the bacteria and away from the predators and, and be able to make sure that they have equal nutrition and fewer uh, medical interventions uh-huh. and uh, lower mortality rate. Okay, you can't uh, say... Okay, I'm going to stop and, you right there. By all, by, by all those measures... Uh, you know, which in a program like this, uh, I, we, we often don't get to. I just want it said that the agricultural community has always done better, and tomorrow is going to be better than today, too, by the way. Listen, I don't dispute you that there have been tremendous advances in agriculture and that, you know, we owe the agricultural community a tremendous debt. And, by the way, that Americans demanded cheap food, and this is something I've said many times in this program, we demanded cheap food, we got cheap food, and now we're pissed off that it's cheap because we don't like the way it's done. So, I mean, there, but there has yeah. to be some give and take here. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we yeah, we, we also, Katie, we've got, uh, you know, we've got John's group, which is, you know, has uh, has important priorities. Yes. Uh, making demands on agriculture. At the same time, we've got our friends in the green community saying we want them produced on less land with less water, more efficiently, fewer inputs, uh, sure, uh, less I mean... energy. And and they're and often they're in total conflict. And if you're a farmer trying to figure out how to operate, uh, it can be a confusing time. It, it definitely well, can. Yeah, and the one thing that Brian and I agree on is that we always, that tomorrow we want to be moving forward. Yes. And we can always do things better. And I think that there has started to be a slight movement in that direction. The veal industry has started to phase out the crates that they can find the baby calves in. A number of states have said that the breeding female pigs can't be kept in the two-foot-wide gestation crates for mm-hmm. their entire gestation cycle. They need to be in a group housing where they can move around. Right. And, you know, there's progress being made on these fronts. Unfortunately, the King Amendment was designed not to allow us to continue moving forward tomorrow and trying to do things better, but to stop progress and actually roll back progress. There's not going to be any laws passed in any uh, issue area if this King Amendment passes for quite some time because these state legislatures, whether it's food safety or uh, the genetically modified issue and 
or you know, animal welfare, these legislatures are going to be confused as to exactly what they can do because this amendment is so broad and open to so many different interpretations. I agree. I, I think it should be killed altogether. And, and I, I, I'm with you, John, on the fact that, you know, look, if you want to do, if you want to enact uh, statutes that protect interstate commerce, um, you know, there is a median way and it doesn't have to be the lowest common denominator, which is what the King Amendment is looking for. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, necessarily California standards, although I would like it if all animal producers did that. And by the way, I'm going to say something about consumers here. People in the agriculture industry live in a bubble. Um, Brian, I'm going to, I've t- said this before. I went to the National Institute of Agriculture, uh, uh, Animal Agriculture. I gave a talk on that. Um, I did this for the Animal Agriculture Alliance last spring. People in agriculture simply do not understand what consumers are looking for. And one of the highest priorities, and this was in that article at the Huffington Post that uh, John mentioned earlier on Friday, the restaurant industry has done a poll. Animal welfare is one of the highest concerns on consumers' uh, minds. And I second that. And if people, if, if guys in the agriculture industry do not recognize that what consumers want and that what they are going to vote for with their forks, and this goes all the way down to like where I teach in Bed-Stuy to a food pantry. I teach cooking there, and I'm telling you, even my constituents there are aware of these issues and are looking to buy in, uh, from companies that do the right thing in terms of animal welfare, and battery cages do not include animal welfare. And I'm just going to say something. I want I want you guys to, to close this program on something that I thought was really interesting and something that I've written about for the Huffington Post, which is the polarity between your two sides, which I find incredibly divisive and destructive in terms of moving agriculture forward in a way that benefits all sides. And I'm going to read directly from your site, Brian, which is called, by the way, for my listeners, It's called Protect the Harvest. The animal, this is quote, animal rights movement in America led by the Humane Society of the United States has evolved into a wealthy and successful attack group determined to end the consumption of meat, eliminate hunting, outlaw rodeos and circuses, and even ban animal ownership, including pets, all together. Protect the Harvest was created to fight back and defend American families, farmers, sportsmen, and animal owners from the growing threat posed by the radical animal rights movement. John, would you like to comment on that characterization of your organization? Well, I hope that my little puppy down the hallway from me that's uh, sitting there listening to this debate doesn't get the idea that I'm against having pets, because I'm certainly not. I, I right? encourage people to Go out, go down to the shelter and adopt a dog or cat and give them a chance at life. And uh, uh, I'm all for that sort of thing. So, so we, we can have more dialogue, though. Uh, Brian has certainly been uh, intelligent and polite. Excellent. Really El- excellent, today. Brian. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, there's room for dialogue. It doesn't have to be vitriolic. And look, I know both sides do it. But, but look, the agreement that we reach with the United Egg Producers, I hope, can be a model for how two sides on two polar opposite sides of an issue can come together and compromise and try to come up with something better that's good for both both parties. I think it can be done. Yeah, I think the Humane Society recognizes a contribution to the American GDP um, that that they make. I mean, we can't live without agriculture. I mean, it's a huge part of our gross domestic product. Uh, it's a huge part of our way of life. It's part of what we pride ourselves on as American citizens. And, uh, you know, the idea that the, the agricultural community has kind of shrouded itself in this bizarre bubble of paranoia. And I believe me, I say this with, with real depth of knowledge. I mean, I read the trade 
trades for the agricultural community literally every day. I am an avid reader of Meeting Place, an avid reader of Drovers. I mean, I get what they're talking about, and I understand what the challenges are. But to, to, to shroud yourself in this crazy paranoia about what other people are thinking and blame the consumer if they get sick from foodborne. I mean, it's like, it's like nuts. You guys have got to come to the playing table. You got to, you got to come down from whatever strange little space that you're occupying and engage with consumers and recognize their demands and start altering your models. And that, because I'm the host of this program and I can say this is the end of this show. <laughs> it's good to control the mic, isn't it? <laughs> it's really good. But Brian, I want to thank you so, so much for being such a thoughtful and articulate spokesman on behalf of your constituency. I do hope you'll come back on the show and join me again for another um, debate. I thought both of you were terrific. I really appreciate it. John Goodwin, you were amazing. And um, Brian, you were amazing too, just so I'm doling out the praise uh, on I both sides. I just want sides. to be excellent, that's all. Uh, you are excellent yeah, he, 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 and amazing, and you're really personable and nice and i like you a lot so <laughs> yeah, well. so this was great so thank you both to my guests uh john goodwin and brian um klippenstein i'd say that i'm sorry it's a it's stein but i will answer stein. either klippenstein no klippenstein i'm so sorry from uh, protect nope, the harvest no and um guys i really appreciate your participation today thank you to habard in, tab to tabard in my sponsor and to my um and to, of course to the heritage radio network and we'll see you next week oh by the way one more piece of housekeeping folks i am once again moving to monday Mondays in January, Mondays at noon. I'm taking back the weekends after five years. So um, if those of you who listen live, uh, that's where I'm going. So we'll see you next week with another great episode of What Doesn't Kill You, a history of the meat industry. Should be fun. Stay tuned, or rather, stay tuned for the Mike and Judy Show, Arts and Seizures, next. And um, thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.